These last two episodes, we've been thinking about how we can challenge traditional modes of lawyering, whether that's in the public sector or the private sector. But what about how we shape the next generation of lawyers? What's the role of the law professor here, the one at the head of the classroom training law students who will go on to become legal actors? I'm Olatunde Johnson. I'm a law professor, as you all know. At my law school, we've had conversations for years about increasing faculty diversity and about designing our curriculum to more critically examine law's relationship to racial and economic inequality. At Columbia Law School, the tenor began to change a few years ago after the 2014 killing of Eric Garner. Students really started to ask important questions about how we taught law, about the perspectives that were missing from the classroom. They sought to push us to teach in a way that was more attentive to how race, power, and identity shape jurisprudence. After the 2020 killing of George Floyd, these conversations became more urgent at my law school and many others. After 2020, what I saw is that law schools started to announce a commitment to anti-racism. They began to examine their hiring practices, pedagogy, and curriculum. The question is whether these pledges will lead to actual change. Welcome to another episode of Through the Gale, a podcast in which we investigate how law and lawyers are addressing racial justice and working to create a multiracial democracy. This episode, we're talking about law schools as a site of lawyers' formation. I will turn it over to Sneha Pandya and Marka Wright, two recent graduates of Columbia Law School. The first voice you'll hear is Sneha's. Law schools are lawyers' training ground. Students learn about different ways of thinking about the law, their commitments to the profession, and how to master core legal concepts. For many students, they learn about how the law has been wielded as a tool to oppress communities they're a part of, and often this lived experience is glossed over in the way the law is taught. Law schools serve as a key site to shape the identities and roles that lawyers see themselves having, which then play out in their participation within an aspiring multiracial democracy. Taking a critical look at the legal educational landscape begs several questions about who is in the space and who has power in the space. To explore these and more questions about how to build more inclusive law schools, we'll start with a central figure to the classroom experience, the law professor. The law professor is traditionally a center of power in the law school classroom. After all, it's their classroom when they're teaching. So let's first ask, who exactly are the people taking on the role of law professor? Yeah, and to that end, we know that only around 30% of full-time law professors are people of color, and around 40% of professors are women as of 2020. It looks like we have miles to go to bring parity across these identities. We're hearing from Professor Mira Deo today. She is the Honorable Vano Spencer Professor of Law at Southwestern Law School, a director of the Law School Survey of Student Engagement, and the author of an incredible book, Unequal Profession, Race and Gender in Legal Academia. A sociologist and lawyer by training, Professor Thea looks directly at the implications of exclusion in legal academia, beginning with who is at the front of the classroom and how they are supported in their role as a law professor, and whether that support is sufficient to professors from minority backgrounds. I graduated over 20 years ago, and a lot has changed, as you might imagine. Um, There were no women of color tenured or tenure track faculty that I had as a professor when I was a student. Um, Most women of color who are law professors now are accidental law professors. 
we never really saw ourselves on this path, in part because we'd never seen anyone like ourselves in the role before. What she just introduced is the concept that many women and people of color approach law teaching as outsiders. And this can manifest in different ways, just looking at the experiences of various women law professors she interviewed for her book. My book highlights the experiences of women of color law faculty, as you mentioned, Uh, but these perspectives are really familiar to anyone who has been marginalized in law teaching or in other spheres, whether because of race or gender or sexual orientation or other identity-based bias, or even due to courses that they teach as legal writing, clinical, academic support, bar prep, and even library faculty often have less pay, security, and even prestige than some of their doctrinal colleagues. A lot of the book's findings are deeply troubling. The challenges for women of color range from mansplaining to what I call heat-heating or silencing in faculty meetings to the devaluing of scholarship by colleagues and even classroom confrontations and biased teaching evaluations from students. These all have really serious implications not just for the classroom experience, but even long-term for tenure and promotion, especially when things like scholarship on diversity might be seen by some colleagues as personal and not really professional, or when students leave low scores on evaluations and really biased comments. I've seen um, really you know, the, the gamut from an Asian American female professor who was told on an evaluation that she, quote, flips her hair over her shoulder too much, Um, And in our conversation during the course of the interview for the study, you know, this this professor told me, I really don't know how to flirt. And yet I think this student was seeing me as being coquettish. Right. So she's seen as this sexual object instead of the academic legal scholar that she is or a black professor who received an evaluation comment that said she's black enough said. Now, how does this have anything whatsoever to do with her teaching effectiveness or pedagogical approach? Obviously, it doesn't. Um, Or a white professor, she received an evaluation that said she presents as gender neutral and that's offensive. And, you know, even in talking through it with her, we really couldn't get the sense of why a student would find this offensive. And yet these irrelevant critiques can actually affect long term career trajectories. I found this perspective from Professor Dale to be really eye opening and necessary. It shows that these real barriers exist in the legal profession for those who come from already underrepresented populations who might not pursue a legal career to begin with. Totally agree. And I was even more struck about the specific anecdotes that women law professors provided in the book. You know, these examples really show the negative pressures that law faculty members from marginalized communities face. And at the same time, they call us to ask the question, how do these professors survive in the academic environment? How do they then take up space and engage with students and their faculty colleagues amidst all this pressure? That's pretty much a whole other ballgame. These professors often wind up taking on extra work with little to no pay for projects focusing on racial or gender issues. They also become a source of professional or even personal advice for marginalized students And to be fair, some schools do a better job of compensating for this additional work. Those are schools that recognize that, you know, maybe a woman has a line out the door every day and students from all over the school are seeking her out because they value her advice and they might be ultimately more likely to stay in school due in part to her support. 
but all of this extra service work, um, even though you know many women in my sample told me directly and unequivocally that working with students is the best part of their job. So for the most part, faculty members are not complaining about working with students, they love it, but it does take time away from other pursuits. And so if scholarship tends to be what is most valued by law schools and women and especially women of color are spending a lot of extra time compared to some of their male colleagues, on that type of service work, well, then that leaves much less time for scholarship, even though that is what schools look to, for the most part, for issues of tenure or promotion or really any sort of advancement. So what if we expected different things from different people who had different strengths or brought different experiences to the law school? There really is a fundamental imbalance in how this work is being done by different law professors of different backgrounds. You know, this year I've been working to build a space for formerly incarcerated folks and current law students to learn and grow together at Columbia Law with Susan Sturm, who is the George M. Jaffin Professor of Law and Social Responsibility. And she's been teaching law since 1992. Sturm has written and spoken extensively about race, gender, legal education, and full participation in higher education. I really wanted to get a sense of how, given her work and her writings, how she thinks about these issues. I love helping people find their passion and learn how to put their ideas in writing. I think ideas are such powerful change agents. And so I would actually, I'm speaking for myself, I would actually be really sad if I offloaded to a lot of other people that aspect of my responsibilities, because I do think that is such an important part of the job. I think that um, making that part of the out-of-the-classroom interactions with students something that not only is part of the expectation of the role, but also does get some kind of recognition and reward on the part of the faculty members who do this would be really, really important. Uh, Because there are people right now who are in the same job that I am that don't have office hours, that don't meet with students at all, that don't supervise students' writing. And I don't mean to say that I am unique in doing that. There are many faculty who do that. Uh, But because they are carrying the weight for a bunch of faculty who don't, that means that there are that many more papers that we need to supervise, that many more clerkship letters we need to write, that many more uh, interactions that we have that involve informal professional counseling. So if there were a way to create more of a culture of expectation that everybody who becomes a law professor is expected to invest some time and energy in the professional development of students. I think that would go a long way. Through your conversation with Professor Sturm, Marga, and mine with Professor Deo, I'm seeing a through line regarding the inequitable distribution of responsibilities at law schools. Professor Deo especially honed in on how this is an issue of equity and not equality. Equitably. I love that word because, you know, what's different about equity and equality is that equity really recognizes that we have different strengths and values those different things that we bring. Equality is really just about everybody 
doing the same thing or being expected to do the same thing or getting the same types of rewards. Whereas equity really recognizes the different contributions that we make. And so institutions need to learn better how to do this, how to value the various ways in which faculty contribute to the school overall. That is it. She said it so well. You know, equity is a foundational element to reach inclusivity. And when I think about the law school space and my own experience as a law student in 2020 and in 2021, far too many areas come to mind where we would have been better off had we incorporated these equity principles into the environment. I could not agree more. And I think it applies not only to the initial question of, so who is the law professor anyways at the head of the classroom calling the shots, but also the question of how do law professors think of their responsibility to the profession and what they teach in context of our society writ large? Of course, there's so much room to integrate equity into the classroom environment. While the traditional law teaching model centers the professor as an expert and can often devalue the experiences students bring to the space from their pre-law school lives, we hear more and more how professors should challenge that model and flatten or flip it to empower students. And that's where Professor Sturm's academic work and experience as a student and a scholar is so powerful. She has actually used it to change her approach in the classroom. I was very fortunate when I was in college to have a professor who... I didn't realize at the time, but really modeled what it looks like to create a learning community, really. That's such jargon, but what it really means to create a community where everyone can participate and contribute and learn. Um, And his name is George Morgan, and he was at Brown, and he um, actually uh, set up the possibility for me to create my own major vision, action, and social change, and to lend his support to me and a whole community of students to build a community where we were learning with and from each other. And we did that in the classroom. We did that in his home. He had us over to his home uh, We where, where we were really humans together who brought different kinds of knowledge and expertise. He clearly knew a lot more than we did about many things. So it's not as if he didn't have any power, but the power came from what he contributed and not from the fact that he had the authority uh, to assign a grade at the end of the semester or to decide who could speak and who couldn't. That was such a transformative experience for me. Uh, And then uh, I, I started down that path when I started teaching in things that were less formal classroom things, like externships that academic faculty don't usually lead. Just one professor choosing to be flexible and choosing to introduce equity into the classroom dynamic can actually change how the environment operates as a whole for law students. And even more so, it benefits law professors to create a classroom environment with an eye toward equity. The experience of learning to share power in the classroom with students and to design a real creative experimentation uh, came from an experience that I had with Lonnie Guineer. Uh, Lonnie was my collaborator and colleague at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and she uh, invited me uh, to co-teach with her uh, in in a class that was initiated by students. Very importantly, it was a critical race theory class initiated by students. 
Lonnie would not agree to co-lead the class unless it included at least race and gender so that you would bring together a group of people who were concerned about both. And she invited me to be a collaborator in that space. So I had the experience of being part of an experiment which was initially designed by students. And what I saw was, first of all, a level of commitment, a level of learning, a level of capacity that I did not see in any other class that I taught. They took up the role of leadership. And the consequence of that was uh, a level of accountability and a level of critical thinking and of being willing to rethink the institutions that they were inside of that I had never seen in a classroom that I set up myself. And so this was so instructive for me. Uh, Lonnie and I ended up writing about it. We created a website called Race Talks, Collaboration Through Conversation. We, wrote, we, we did a video with our students where they talk about the impact of being in this kind of learning space. Uh, and it changed me forever. I could never think that I could create in a learning environment that students would really grab onto, make their own, and just change their own way of understanding um, unless they were part of the design process. That really shows just how much there is that professors can learn from their students. The collective choice that the late great Professor Guineer and Professor Stern made to invite students to become their collaborators and teammates in the law teaching arena is far from the norm in law schools. But it's such a good way to show how law professors can make different choices and build up a more equitable, empathetic, and creative legal profession. Every good experience I had in law school began with both professors and students drawing on their humanity and all of our collective human experience in the law. Yeah, I agree 100%. And bringing humanity to bear in the law school experience is one more building block on the path toward inclusivity. Professor Kendall Thomas, who is the Nash Professor of Law and is the first Black LGBTQ identifying professor at Columbia Law School, graciously talked to us about how he brings his humanity to bear in his own teaching. Professor Thomas's scholarship spans the legal field, comparative constitutional law and human rights, with research focuses on critical race theory, legal philosophy, feminist legal theory, and law and sexuality, And those focuses invite us to consider diverse perspectives and show the absolute need for their presence in the law. I have to go way back to my early years as the child and grandchild of people who were involved in the 1950s and 1960s in the African-American freedom struggle. And for whom it was very clear to me as I was growing up the law and their relationship to the law was a relationship that they saw through a political lens 
and through a social lens. Social in the sense that for them, the law was not first and foremost an institution that affected individual lives, although it did do that, but it was an institution of social power that had an impact on our entire community and which was most visible, frankly, with respect to the relationship that our community and people in the small community of color in which I was raised knew first and foremost through police contact and contact with the police. So uh, the police were the law. And so the experience of what law was was shaped by those street-level encounters with police, all of whom in my town, as in many other small towns, were white. And so it was impossible for me not to take those experiential lessons of law from my childhood and adolescence into the study of law and consequently into the teaching of law. What strikes me about Professor Thomas's story is that so many students come into the law school classroom with experiences just like these that deeply conflict with how the law is taught traditionally and that it is impossible to leave those experiences out of how one learns and teaches the law. Yeah, and what's powerful about this for me is that when professors choose to bring their own humanity into the classroom and create space for students to bring theirs in as well, students really benefit by gaining confidence in both learning the law and confidence to challenge and change the law. And I think that's just what law school should create. Environments where students belong in a way that is organic, that values their lived experiences, and that shows us how we all become better attorneys and practitioners when we can be our full selves. That's a vision we should definitely strive to reach. We asked two of the professors we spoke to about what a truly inclusive law school looks like. An inclusive law school, I think, is one where students from all different backgrounds are comfortable. They're comfortable being themselves. They're encouraged to draw from their own individual strengths. Their diversity is celebrated and recognized. And any challenges that they have based on being different from the sort of expected or traditional law student is something that schools celebrate and encourage them to work through um, and support them in working through so that all students can succeed. I've actually embraced the language of full participation rather than inclusion, because inclusion implies that there's someone already inside and they're deciding to bring other people in. And so often that means that the way people are brought in will reflect the interests and the ways of working of the person who's already there or the group that's already there. So a truly participatory law school, 
uh, is one where people of all different backgrounds and identities and positions uh, can access the law school, can um, enter and, and fully participate, shape what happens in the space, feel that they belong, and very importantly, that they can actually create, uh, contribute to the learning and the participation of others. When you really know that you're part of something is when you can shape it, when you can actually have your values and your goals uh, be part of what you practice, and when you can have an impact on other people. People want to have impact on other people. And that's particularly true about law students. And so when you've created a space where everyone's voice can be heard, where everyone can learn, where everyone can fail and recover, where people have the possibility of their way of learning and practicing in the communities they come from actually matter in the overall discourse and where they get to shape and influence the participation of others. That's when we have a, a truly fully participatory law school. And we've got a long way to go. Wow, I really love these framings. They're complicated and nuanced and pose really difficult questions for us still to answer. What do we do to celebrate and recognize diversity? How do we create an environment for full participation? And even more so, how do we invite difficult conversations on diversity when the faculty and students participating in these conversations might not be particularly diverse? How do we think about issues like race, gender, and class in that context? Professor Thomas reminded me of how difficult this work can be and how we might try to address these questions. We have to be willing to look not only at who's in the classroom, or who's in front of the classroom. We have to be willing to look as well at how we learn and who is involved in the creation of and the fashioning of learning strategy. That's the next great challenge. And right now, uh, I think that, that, that understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion and a very narrow story about academic freedom are on a collision course. But this work is going to make everybody uncomfortable. And we're at a moment in the history, not just of legal education, but of education more generally, in which everybody seems to think that the most important thing is not to be made uncomfortable or to make other people uncomfortable. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Right now, comfort of the elites, the powerful, the generic power brokers and holders is not our priority in reshaping how we think about law teaching and how we make it inclusive. Yeah, and maybe some of the answers that we're looking for lie in attempting to integrate a racial equity lens into the law school experience. To me, building a racial equity lens requires sitting in the contradictions that are built in to work that's, that, that's aimed at building uh, full participation and equity across race as well as other dimensions. 
We are in a set of legal institutions that were simultaneously set up to promote freedom and democracy at the very time that they were also set up to enslave people and to permit enslavement. And that set of contradictions about the role of the law and the role of lawyers and judges remains a, a struggle that we have to be able to deal with. And so to me, racial equity requires being able to live in that space of contradiction and to embrace it as something that we can't escape, that we have to navigate. And similarly, a racial equity lens requires that we deal with this kind of paradox of racial salience, that we have to deal with race in order for us to be able to deal with the continued racial disparities that and, and racial inequities that um, are, are so prevalent and apparent. And at the same time, in part because racism is so built into structures that have now become uh, just the way we do things, we can't only deal with race. And we have to engage white people and get enable white people to share power. Um, and yet, um, white people don't necessarily know how to make a racially equitable institution. So how do we deal with the contradiction of racialized power, that paradox of racialized power? To me, a racial, a racially equitable law school does not run away from those contradictions. A racially equitable law school embraces them and builds the capacity of individuals and groups and future lawyers to um, understand them, to know how they're embedded in history, to know how they're embedded in sociological structures, and to know how they can be an engine for change rather than uh, a way to have us cycling around an inequitable status quo. Uh, yeah, not running away from the contradictions, as Professor Sarm so aptly put it, the only way to invite the difficult conversations we have to have in order to move forward. The only way the classroom experience can align with students' pre-law school realities and encounters with the law. It feels like the only way to truly invite scholars of diverse backgrounds to join the faculty ranks. These contradictions feel like the starting point. And like she said, it's a site of struggle between many different dualities. And I don't want to gloss over the fact that it's been a site of struggle for a long time. Law schools, like all historic institutions in this country, grew as sites of exclusion. By challenging that as a starting point and not allowing law schools to be so exclusionary inherently, we're all engaged in the struggle of shaping our society to reflect our ideals and the people within it. Of course, after talking to three professors, I still have more questions than answers, but that's probably okay. You cannot have a meaningful conversation about racial equity and inclusion and the creation of an anti-racist law school if you're not willing to hazard a bit of discomfort. So I hope that the conversation we've had and the conversations that folks will have about the podcast will promote not just a culture of racial equity, but a culture of racial discomfort. Because I think the only, you have to go, there's a, a, a saying they used to say in the church, you, you have to go through it 
to get to it, right? And you have to go through the discomfort to get to and enact and experience a more equitable community, whatever the community is. So here's where we land. We invite you all to sit in this discomfort and join us in this struggle. Challenging convention has to start somewhere, and we are so proud and thankful for the work that students are doing across these institutions to make them better for everyone, something that law professors also benefit from. We hope this conversation helps faculty and administrators, as well as students, think about what you can do at your institutions to push for an inclusive and diverse environment where everyone is heard and seen. And maybe by changing law schools, we'll start to change the law for the better. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Sneha Pandia and Marga Wright. It was sound edited by Devin Cortan and recorded by Jacob Rosati. We thank Caitlin Walsh for her assistance with this podcast. Our funding is provided by the Center on Constitutional Governance and the Columbia Law School Anti-Racism Grant Program. Please check our website for a list of books and articles and all the music we play. In our next episode, we look at law, leadership, and democracy. How have the seismic disruptions to our democracy in recent years affected who runs for public office? And what work still remains?